That was a long and heavy psalm. Thank you, Joe, for reading it and for everyone for standing for the reading of it. So it is a heavy psalm, so let's go to the Lord in prayer this morning uh, for help to understand it this morning. Let's pray. Our God, this morning, we need your help. We need your help because we are um, men and women who have sin in our hearts. We are men and women who are distracted easily. Uh, We often, even in a room like this where we are meant to worship you, God, our own hearts get drawn to other things. And so help us this morning uh, to hear your word that the Holy Spirit would be here in our hearts and in this room, that God's word would be illumined to us in a way that is surprising. Oh God, we pray that even as we read Psalm 22 again and consider it, that our hearts, if they are downcast, might be encouraged. If they feel uncertain, might gain some clarity. Uh, We pray that if our hearts feel condemned, that they might be full of uh, vision of the gospel of the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ. Help us with all of this, we pray. Um, We are mere men, and so we need our God, supernatural, your power to be over this text for us and our um, consideration of it. Help us, in Christ's name we pray. Amen. Uh, Knowing and trusting in Jesus does not insulate a person from some of the most intense despair you might face in life, right? Knowing Jesus does not insulate you from suffering and and pain. Uh, The dark night of the soul is often a term that's used to describe this feeling of deep spiritual anguish that perhaps a Christian might face, the dark night of the soul. Even if you look back in history and look at some of the greats of Christian history, you look at a man like Charles Spurgeon, a great preacher, a powerful figure in Christian history, has experienced these dark nights of the soul. This man, Charles Spurgeon, was often too depressed to get out of bed in the morning. He, he could often not even muster up enough strength to come up with a Sunday morning sermon, often twice a month. He was riddled with anxiety and depression. Or think about Martin Luther, the reformer, the man who has penned volumes and has created uh, amazing, amazing doctrine. This man himself, who constantly battled depression and anxiety. Hear these words from a letter that Martin Luther wrote to his close friend during one of his bouts with depression. Hear this. I spent more than a week in death and in hell. My entire body was in pain, and I still tremble now. Completely abandoned by Christ, I labored under the vacillations and storms of desperation and blasphemy against God. Uh, you don't even have to look in Christian history. You, look at, you can look at the scriptures. You can see a man like Jeremiah who was named the weeping prophet. Or even David, the man who penned the psalm that we're going to be considering today. A great and godly man like King David, whose pillow was surely soaked with tears because of the anxiety in his heart, because of the sadness of his mind and of his soul. Deep, deep anxiety and anguish. And so, Christian, you are not alone in your anguish. You are not alone in your anxiety, depression. You are not alone in your sadness. In fact, this past week itself, I spoke with a Christian here 
who shared with me a note of a question that they wrote in the front of their Bibles 10 years ago. And here's what that note said. How can I have the joy of the Lord but still be fighting depression? Right? How can I have the joy of the Lord that I feel but still be fighting depression? Can you relate to that question or to that sentiment? Do you know what it is like to know God, right, to really know God, to trust in God, but to somehow feel this unshakable despair in your soul? You find yourself even questioning God in seasons of life and wondering where he is in your life because life is hard, it's confusing, it just doesn't make sense. I suffer, I have pain. And I think, even as I consider my own life and perhaps you for yourself, I think the Christian life is often filled with seasons of very strong faith and seasons of very weak faith and everything in the middle. Where some days you feel like you have a good handle on life and that God is with you and that he's for you and that he's got your back. And then other days, for some of us, most days, maybe recently, when you feel like you are out of control, God is nowhere to be found and and no one can help you. No one. God's gone. Everyone else is gone. And I don't know about you, but I hate feeling that way. I hate feeling the up and down of the Christian life. I, I, I would much rather have my faith in God, my trust in his goodness, my own mental stability to be constant, not shaken by the storms of life. But that's not the case. I often find myself up and down. Perhaps you do as well. But would you know that as much as we might be frustrated with our anxious hearts, as much much as we might be angry with our own selves and our weak faith, God does not push us away to the corner. He doesn't push us away to the corner and say, hush. Instead, he is the one who says in Isaiah, come, let us reason together. He is the one who... God who entertains Job when he says the most offensive questions as Job himself is going through suffering. God is the one who entertains his questions. He is the God who actually got into a wrestling match with someone, with Jacob, until God granted him what he asked. This is the God who accepts us with our questions, with our doubts, with our fears, with our anxieties. Listen, when we don't even give one another that latitude to question, to struggle in faith. God includes a psalm like this, Psalm 22, in his scriptures, as permission for us to say, God, where are you? Where are you? God actually lets us be honest and and real and even to question him. Think of that. God invites us to come and question. He gives us permission to take him into the deepest, the most darkest, the most ugly recesses of our souls that are filled with doubt and heartache and pain and uncertainty. So this morning as we come before Psalm 22, do you have questions for God this morning? Do you have things you want to ask him? Do you have troubles in your heart? Is your heart and mind exhausted and you need the sweet comfort, the lasting comfort of God? Well, God this morning desires for you to bear your soul before him, to be honest before him with what troubles you. He does not push you away to a corner. No, our God is a gracious God. 
And so allow yourself to let the scriptures give you language and permission to come to God no matter the state of your faith, if you're seeking religion, if you are seeking God, no matter the state of your heart, if you find yourself in flux, if you find your mind troubled, allow yourself the permission this morning as we consider Psalm 22 uh, to bear your souls before God. And so if you're not already there, let's turn to Psalm 22. There's a Bible in the seat back in front of you. You can turn there. Psalm 22 is another psalm of David. David has written a lot of psalms, and this is another psalm of David. And it's written, we're not sure exactly the context of what transpired for David to write this, but we do know that it's a time for David when he's in deep, deep anguish. So reading from verse 1. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why are you so far from saving me? From the words of my groaning, O God, I cry by day, but you do not answer. And by night, but I find no rest. As you read that, perhaps you can even hear yourself asking those own questions. The same questions that David asked. Because David is one of those people in the Bible who we can relate to because he's just brutally honest. We see his life for what it is. He bears his soul here. As you read these words, is it not some of the things that you have said yourself at one point or another? Are these words not relatable to you? David puts on paper what we feel often in our hearts, but perhaps we don't know how to say, or perhaps we're not even sure that we have the permission to say it. Right? You read a, a psalm like this, and you're like, why is that in the Bible? That doesn't look very uh, godly to me. That doesn't look very Christian to me. Right? We're not even sure if this is allowed to be in here because of David's brutal honesty, because for the Christian... Again, how can one be both faithful, right? How can one be both faithful and so faithless? How do, how do both of those things exist? If our hearts have been flooded with the light of God, how can there be such darkness in there as well? So as much as we feel what we feel, we think it's wrong to feel it, and so out of guilt, we just try to stop feeling it and we move on, right? We, we try to cover up the doubts and insecurities that are in our hearts and in our minds. I remember about 10 years ago, in my own life, and some of you know the journey that I was on 10 years ago, I, I found myself in a deep, deep time of not finding God, wanting to know God, wanting to see Him, but feeling so distant from Him, feeling like He was so distant from me, like He was not hearing me. And I struggled, and I, and I longed to hear. And I remember thinking, man, I need to speak to someone. I need to talk with someone about my anxieties. And I found well-meaning Christians, people who loved the Lord and loved me, often saying to stop doubting just to simply have faith. And it's well-meaning, and it's, and it's a good thought. But I, I remember thinking to myself, if I can just put a plug in my doubt and if I can just somehow conjure up faith, don't you think I would have done that by now? Right? Is there some kind of pill that you can just take to instantly bring about faith? Is there something that, a formula that I could follow to conjure up faith? Because when we are in the valley of darkness, or when a fellow Christian is in a valley of darkness, of uncertainty, of faith, and of life, it can make us feel like our groanings towards God are incompatible with the Christian life. Does that make sense? 
as if what we feel, the honesty of what we feel, does not line up with this Christian faith. So we would want to quickly pull us up, pluck us out of that valley, or pluck other people up out of that valley because we actually care, but we are not being true to what we feel in those moments. But David is saying to us in this psalm, listen, I'm a believing man. I'm a man who loves God, and I follow God, and I'm speaking to my God. And I'm saying, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why can't I hear you? Why are you distant? Why are you silent? And that's what David feels, that God is distant and that he is silent. David's crying out, my God, my God. He's not crying out, my arm, my arm, or my bills, my bills, my my friends, my friends. He's crying out, my God, my God. Because there could be difficult circumstances facing him, right? There could be real pain surrounding David. But his cry is not first about those circumstances. His cry is, my God. My God. Where is my God while I'm in this trial? Because if I'm trudging through the harshness of what life throws at me, but my God is there, then that changes everything. But if I'm in the belly of suffering and God is nowhere to be found and will not answer, then that changes everything. David's God is the God who has promised him, right, in Deuteronomy. He says this, God says this, be strong and courageous. Do not fear. It is the Lord your God who goes with you. I will never leave you. I will never forsake you. And now David is saying no. You have forsaken me, God. You have forsaken me. I'm in my hour of need, and you are nowhere to be found. My life feels like it is losing ground, and you are nowhere to be found. And so even as we consider forsakenness, what is forsakenness? I don't think it's just loneliness. I don't even think it's someone just letting you down. I think forsakenness has a deeper meaning. It is loneliness. It is someone letting you down. But I think it has a deeper meaning of betrayal. Like someone has done you wrong. If you're a soldier on the battlefield and your fellow comrade gets injured, it would be the greatest betrayal for you to leave him there, walk away as he cries out for help. Or if you are a groom waiting at the altar for your bride to come walking down the aisle dressed in white, only to realize that she's not coming and she's left you at the altar, that would be a great betrayal because there's an expectation. There's a longing. There's a hope. There is a deep trust. But instead of receiving what should have been there, you are stabbed in the back. A knife in the back is what you get instead of someone acting like they should in kindness and in love towards you. And so David feels this. David feels abandoned. He feels forsaken by God. And he struggles to make sense of this, right? He's, he's trying to realize, how do I make sense of what I feel and who I know God is? David tries to appeal to who God is. That's what he tries to do in verse 3. Who he, has, who he has been in the past, who God has been in the past so that he might feel God's nearness and be heard. That's what David tries to do. He says in verse 3, Yet you are holy. Yet you are holy, enthroned on the praises of Israel. 
In you our fathers trusted. They trusted and you delivered them. To you they cried and were rescued. In you they trusted and were not put to shame. That's the story of my fathers and my forefathers. It's as if David is both trying to convince himself, console his own heart, as well as convince God of who he is so that God might respond. This is who you are, God. Why aren't you rescuing me? It's like he's saying God is holy. Yes, he is holy. My fathers trusted him. And they were at their ends, and God reached and rescued them. God, you've done it for them. You're going to do the same for me, right? You've got to do the same for me. David looks into history and sees the hands of God rescue and deliver those who went before him. Right? Since God feels distant right now, all he has is history to look back at. That's all he can hold on to. Right? Even in your own lives, in my life. God might feel distant and silent at times, but we have history with him. We can actually look back in our own lives and see him. Right? Knowing and following God may not taste so sweet right now, but we've also known him to be the most satisfying and the most sweetest thing that we've ever tasted. We've had those days. We've had those years. We've had those seasons of life where nothing but God could satisfy and even if, even if the world around us was changing and was hard, God was enough for us. We may have come in this morning. I don't know where you are in life. You may have lost a job. You may be facing illness, family, relationships may be struggling. You may have become ill, maybe struggling in a marriage. But we've also seen him provide jobs in the past. We've seen him restore our bodies. We've seen him revive our relationships, break addictions. We've tasted the sweetness of God. So God may feel distant and silent now, but has he always been? And I think one of the things we convince ourselves is we are in this moment now, and this God I knew, who I thought I knew, is nothing like the God who the Bible says, or in reality what he's like. But we forget we have history with this God. If our eyes would be opened enough, his fingerprints have been all over our lives. In fact, that's what David appeals to in verse 9. Since the day he was born, God was there. Hear what he says in verse 9. Yet you are he who took me from the womb. You made me trust you at my mother's breasts. On you was I cast from birth. And from my mother's womb, you have been my God. Be not far from me, for trouble is near, and there is none to help. As, as David thinks about his God, as David thinks about his history with God, before he can even remember, God seems so intimately close to David before, even giving us the imagery of God being in the delivery room when he was born, as if God is the one who took him from the womb and placed him on his mother's chest. And here, now, David, pleading to his heavenly father to be near because trouble is near him. I've thought a lot about this idea of fatherhood and what that relationship entails this, this past year because I, I have a daughter now. And so life looks different and I, I'm seeing things differently. And so actually on Friday night, me and my, fam, my wife and 
Reagan and my sister, we were hanging out at the house just having a good time. Reagan was smiling, beaming. She was running around all clumsy and laughing for no reason. And we were having a great time until the smile on her face ceased. It completely went away, went flat. And then instead, her lips started to quiver. And before you know it, the, the most heartbreaking cry that you could ever hear comes out of this small little body. And what was bursting with laughter now was bursting with tears in this moment. I remember feeling just confused what happened. We didn't know what happened. We didn't see what happened. And all of a sudden, my wife, she looks to the floor, and there's a wasp on the floor. There's a wasp that made its way into our home. And so we're thinking the worst, you know. We're new parents. We don't know how to deal with any of this stuff. And so we, we look all over her body, and we see a small prick right in the center of her chest. A wasp bit her. And I told my wife later that day, it's now my life's goal to kill every wasp in the history of the world, past, present, and future. I mean, I imagine this wasp in my head just punching his face over and over and over again. He hurt my daughter. He came into my home. Who does he think he is? I'm acting like it has emotions and is a person. But I remember feeling heaviness. In fact, I took my shoe off after stepping on this wasp, looked at it just in the face, imagining all kinds of things. So in the middle of the night, so we're not sure what to do with baby. In the middle of the night, I run out to the pharmacy. I go get whatever my wife tells me to get. I come back home. Uh, she takes care of her. And then I go back to Home Depot. <laughs> and I go get a draft stop to put in front of the door. I get wasp spray. It's 9 o'clock at night. I go around the perimeter of the house. I spray everything down. It gets a little crazy. I get on top of the roof. I go on top of the roof. I don't know why I'm on the roof, but I have extra spray, so I'm just going all over the place, spraying everything I can see so that wasps don't come into our home. I remember feeling just heavy and, and concern and love for my daughter. And I thought of this psalm as I was studying it. And I thought, if I'm a small, imperfect, sinful man who cares small and loves small, if, if my daughter cried and she cried and wailed, having been hurt, and I just stood there, no worse, I walked away from her and she cried and I just ignored her, what does that do? What does that do for her? What does that say of me? And so as I've considered this psalm, I've really wrestled with, if I am imperfect and I am human and sinful, should not a holy and good God hear his children when they cry? Should he not respond when they call out to him? For David, not only is God far, but his enemies are very near. God is far, but what's worse are that his enemies are very near. Here's how David describes them in verse 6. But I am a worm, not even a man, scorned by mankind and despised by the people. All who see me mock me. They make mouths at me. They wag their hearts and their heads. He trusts in the Lord. Let him deliver him. Let him rescue him, for he delights in him. David is put 
to shame by his enemies for his trust in God because his God is nowhere to be found. He's nowhere. You can't find him. You can't hear him. It's one thing for you to be suffering in life. It's one thing for you to be suffering in this world as a Christian. It's another thing for people to know that you're suffering and them not see your God respond. Right? If you know people who don't trust in God, perhaps you're here today. Part of what makes God unbelievable often is the fact that so often we don't see him or hear him. John Stott, a great theologian, past theologian, says this is one of the hardest things about the Christian faith. God's silence in suffering or seemingly silent posture in suffering. David goes on to describe his enemies in verse 12. Many bulls encompass me. Strong bulls of Bashan surround me. They open wide their mouths at me like a ravening and roaring lion. I'm poured out like water. And all my bones are out of joint. My heart is like wax. It is melted within my breast. My strength is dried up like a potsherd. And my tongue sticks to my jaws. And you lay me in the dust of death. Dogs encompass me. A company of evildoers encircles me. They have pierced my hands and feet. I can count all of my bones. They stare and gloat over me. They divide my garment among them. and For my clothing, they cast lots. David is at the end of himself. I mean, the way he is speaking is so drastic and so, so over the edge where life is about to end for him. Note that most of this section between verses 12 and 18, are about David's enemies. Right? He's talking about David's, his own enemies in this section. But in verse 15, he's talking about God. In the latter part of verse 15, he's talking about God. David says this, you lay me in the dust of death. Just a quick line in this section. Brief. While this is a quick and brief line for David, commentators say that this is at the very heart of the theological problem that David is facing. What's the problem he's facing? The one responsible for all of David's misery and harm is God himself. That's how he sees it. You lay me in the dust of death. You've done this. David has said a lot in this psalm. Right? He's sort of just been on a rant. He's venting. He's letting things out that's been on his heart to God. Even when David is perhaps not even right, right? He says a lot of things in this psalm. Even when he's not even right, he says it, and the scriptures record it. They're not censored. His honest questions are not censored. His pains are not sanitized in the scriptures. That's the great thing about God's word. You get real people struggling with real struggles and pain and questions, and none of it's sanitized. And you bring it to God. And we read it, and we resonate with this. This is what David feels, that God's forsaken him, completely abandoned him when he needs him the most. That's what he feels. Uh, But then a turn happens in verse 22 in this psalm. It's an unexpected turn. You, You would almost think you're reading another psalm. It's an unexpected turn, almost as if there are verses missing that explain what made David go from such despair because of God to great faith in God. What's bridged this? It's as if something clicks for David in an instance. 
Because here's what he says in verse 24. This is, the, this is the David who is saying all of these things about God forsaking him and not being near. Here's what he says in verse 24. For he is not despised or abhorred the affliction of the afflicted. And he has not hidden his face from him. But he has heard when he cried to him. David goes on to say towards the end of this psalm that the rich, the poor, people from past generations and future generations, people from every race and nation will know God and be his people and they will worship him. That the the righteousness of God will be proclaimed to a people yet unborn. How has David begin to envision this massive redemption of people? I mean, it doesn't feel like the same psalm. What has happened between David in the first part of this psalm and David in the second? It seems totally different. He's gone from despair to now joy and praise. Does David even know what he is speaking of when he describes the despair he was in at the beginning of the psalm? Now, speaking of the God who has actually never been far off or silent at all. What has happened to David? It seems like there's more to this psalm than we're seeing. More to this psalm than what we're reading. Well, that's because there is. There's far, far more to this psalm than even David knows. There's more to this psalm than David even knew when he wrote this psalm. Far more to it than Israel knew when they would read it and sing it. This psalm that David wrote has lament, but then it also has praise. It has lament, but it also has praise. But what has caused this bridge between despair and joy? Right? When we even ask ourselves the question, there's despair and then there's joy. What do I do with that? Well, the realization is that that can only be realized about a thousand years later. Because between the time that David wrote this psalm and the realization came, something has happened. Because this psalm, you may know, is a messianic psalm. A psalm that foreshadows who? Jesus. It foreshadows Jesus. This psalm has been written by David in his real experience of sorrow and feeling abandoned by God. Those are real things that he has faced and have felt. But its significance goes infinitely beyond what David's experience was or what your experience and my experience are. It goes beyond that. Spurgeon, Charles Spurgeon says of this psalm, David and his afflictions may be here in a very modified sense. But just as the star is concealed by the light of the sun, he who sees Jesus will probably neither care nor see David anymore. Once you see Jesus in this psalm, it's as if the sun is now shining out the star. And now you see Jesus in a way that Close your mind. And then you start to see this psalm totally differently. What David has written here is unfinished because the Gospels, the Gospels pick up where we have questions. Where we wonder, where do we go between the middle ground? How do I get from despair to joy? What is missing? What is this pointing to? If you've been listening carefully or are familiar with Jesus' life, his passion, his suffering, There have been flashing red lights all throughout Psalm 22. You can begin to see bits of the gospel flashing in red lights all over Psalm 22 because what were were spiritual metaphors for David describing his anguish and suffering, right? 
What were spiritual metaphors that David was using to describe his suffering were physical realities for the life of Jesus in his suffering. Right? What was metaphorical for David was reality for Jesus. What do I mean? Jesus not only speaks Psalm 22 in his suffering, but he experiences it. When Psalm 22, 7 says that the people scorn and wag their heads at Jesus. Do you know what Matthew 27, 39 says? Those who passed him by derided him, wagging their heads. When in Psalm 22, 8, his enemies mocked David for trusting in God. Matthew 27, 43 says that people said to Jesus, he trusts in God. Let God deliver him. He desires him. Psalm 22 speaks of hands and feet being pierced. But Jesus is the recipient of this actually on the cross. Psalm 22 speaks of David's spiritual thirst. His tongue stuck to his jaw. But Jesus is the one who is mockingly given sour wine when he thirsts. Psalm 22 speaks of garments being divided. But it is Jesus' garments that are divided for the soldiers in four parts. And at the very start of Psalm 22, how does it begin? My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And Jesus on the cross, in a loud voice, says the same. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? But would you hear this? Those words, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Only Christ could say those words, and it'd be a true statement. And it'd be an actual statement. Why? Uh, Because all of the abandonment that David experienced, all of the sense of forsakenness that he recounted is not only categorically different. It's not just a different category because of the level of abandonment and forsakenness that Jesus experienced. It's actually non-existent. It's not there. David was not abandoned. Jesus is the only one who has been forsaken by the Father. He's been forsaken by the Father so that you and I would not be. And so when Jesus says, my God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? He can say that and it be true. We can say that and we can mean it. But he has been forsaken so that you and I would not be able to say those words and it be true. Christ is exclusively forsaken by God so that you could be completely accepted by God. That's the reality. Listen, Jesus entered into this dark night of the soul in the deepest and most unthinkable sense, the darkest of nights in the soul. He entered into the darkest of divine abandonment so that we would not be abandoned. Jesus Christ was put to shame and cast into God-forsakenness, stripped even of his clothes to bear the shame of sinful man. As one preacher said, the first Adam, back in Genesis, originally created in the righteousness of God, by his sin, stripped us naked. But the last Adam, Jesus, the perfect Adam, suffering the shame of nakedness, by his obedience, clothes us in the righteousness of God. One man makes us naked because of his sin. One man clothes us through his unnakedness, and he makes us righteous. That's what's happened with the work of Christ. Listen, if you have thought you've gone low, 
You have not gone as low as this. If you think you have been abandoned, you have not been abandoned like this. And hear that not as a, your pain is not that great. Don't worry. Don't hear that as that. Hear that as good news. You've not been abandoned. You've not been forsaken. The message of the psalm through the lens of the cross is this. You've never been where Christ has, and you never need be there. It's never anywhere you have to go if you are in Christ. This psalm, after going through dark valleys with David, as well as soaring heights, right? Low, low, dark, deep valleys with David in Psalm 22, and then soaring heights in the second half, comes to a quiet conclusion at the end in verse 31. It ends by saying, and he has done it. And he has done it. Does that sound familiar as well? Do those words sound familiar to you? Do these not echo the words of our Savior when he was breathing his last breath on the cross of Calvary, bearing our sin and shame, saying, it is finished. He has done it. It is finished. Christ has done it all. Dear brothers and dear sisters, when you feel that life is hard, that God is far, and that he cannot hear you crying as if he's left the room, would you remember Psalm 22 and look forward to the cross? When you cry out to God, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why are you distant? Why do you not hear me? Why are you not answering me? Would you look forward to the cross and see Christ Jesus bleeding and screaming out those same exact words so your feeling of forsakenness would not be eternal? Would you remember that he endured a great night of the soul so that you could experience the brilliance of the sun shining down on you so that the, the darkness that you endure today, the real darkness, the real hardship, the real suffering that you endure today, the heartaches that you feel crushing you today, the depression of your mind that torments you, that those things would only last for a moment. That they would only last for a moment. Paul writes this in 2 Corinthians 4, and I'll close with this. Paul writes this in 2 Corinthians 4, 7 to 10. But we have this treasure in jars of clay to show that the surpassing power belongs to God and not to us. We are afflicted in every way, but we are not crushed. We are perplexed, but not driven to despair. We are persecuted, but we are not forsaken. Struck down, but not destroyed. Always carrying in the body the death of Jesus, so that the life of Jesus may also be manifested in our bodies. Seven Mile Road, you will endure trials of the body, you will endure trials of the mind and heart that will test your faith and resolve in the most intense ways that feel utterly unbearable. But hear God's word tell you that in all of it, you will never be let go of by God. You will be afflicted, you'll be perplexed, you'll be persecuted, you'll be struck down, but you will not be crushed. 
You will not be driven to utter despair. You will not be forsaken. You will not be destroyed, for Christ has done a complete work on your behalf, beginning to end. He has done it. It is finished. Praise be to our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Let's pray.